Now, there's, uh, there's four Gospels, Matthew, then there's Mark, there's Luke, and there's John. Only two of the Gospels have genealogies, Matthew and Luke. Mark doesn't have it, and neither does John. Uh, Matthew is written by a Levitical priest or a renegade priest, so scholars believe Levi, whose name is Matthew, and he wrote to the Jews, and he gives the lineage of Christ to de- declare him to be the Messiah from the lineage of David through the line of the tribe of Judah, which had to happen for the Messiah, and he lays this out clear in what we're about to study. Mark is like the Reader's Digest version of the Gospels. His is really quick, and, and, and it goes fast, and it leaves out details. It was written by a man, and uh, it, it's, it, that's a joke. I thought it would be funny. It's a, it's a short account and just gets to the point. Uh, one of my favorites, by the way. Um, and my wife will say the same thing when she talks. It's like when she, she assembles a pizza one pepperoni at a time. It's a lot of detail, and I'm not a detail guy. And I'm like, get to the point, get to the point, get to the point. There it is. Perfect. Okay. Anybody else like that? Or is that just, yeah, a few honest men, (laughs) a few others who are scared to death? Don't you dare raise your hand. Don't you even think about it. (laughs) Uh, So Mark uh, doesn't include a genealogy. And Mark, interestingly enough, is from the perspective of Peter, who was half Jewish and half uh, Gentile. And so he's the bridge. And um, Matthew declares Jesus to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, this, is, this is the king. And so uh, the early church had four symbols on, on the wall of the church and for the gospels. And one would be a lion, a face of a lion. And that was for Matthew. And then when it came to Mark, it was this idea of a servant. And that's the way Mark portrays Christ. And so you had an oxen, a beast of service, a beast of burden. And then Luke was from the perspective of Paul. And Luke was also a physician and added words that the others didn't. All, all the different authors had used different words. And it's fascinating because when I tell you in a second, you'll see why it's so cool. But he was, he was portrayed as a man, kind of the, the, just the, 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 uh, the, the Jesus the man. And so the picture on the wall in the church would be of a man for, for the gospel of Luke. And then for the gospel of John, if you read John, and this is, if you're a brand new Christian, I'd encourage you, I did the same thing when I first came to Christ, you read the book of John, because it deals with the deity of Christ, that he's not only man, he's fully man, fully God, and so they would deal with the deity of Christ, they didn't have a genealogy, it just says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and they don't go through a genealogy, but the depiction for that was an eagle, this idea of, of God himself, a soaring eagle, so you had a lion, an ox, and a man, and an eagle to account for the four gospels. All four gospels were written in Greek. And Greek, much like Hebrew, um, had the same similarity that in our language, in the English language, we have an alphabet, A, B, C, D, right? E, F, G, got that? We have an alphabet, an English alphabet, and we have an Arabic numeric system. In Hebrew and Greek, they had an alphabet, and each letter contained their numeric system. So each letter was ascribed a number, a numeric number. And so the, the Greeks and the Hebrews, their, their numeric system was encompassed in their alphabet. We have it separate. We have an English alphabet and an Arab numeric system. Well, that's what's fascinating because from the Old Testament to the New Testament, when it transfers, you're going to see this numerology come together that'll blow your mind. You're not just holding a book in your hand. You're holding the living, breathing Word of God. And, and after we take a look at a man by the name of Ivan Panin, who was a mathematician. You've all heard of Lewis Carroll, who wrote uh, Alice in Wonderland. He was a mathematician. Uh, mathematician, and this man graduated from Harvard. Uh, his work from uh, 18, 
oh gosh, 1882 to 1942, was submitted uh, to the Nobel uh, Association, Nobel Peace Prize Association, to confirm that the Bible is the Word of God. And they were stunned by his findings. Over 43,000 voluminous pages depicting this this picture we're going to see in a moment that he put together. It's more than just names. We're going to ascribe numeric value. We're going to see the significance of the book you're holding in your hand. It's not just a book. It's the only book in the world where you don't read it. It reads you. In addition, the old adage is a man whose Bible's falling apart or a woman whose Bible's falling apart is a sign that their life isn't. Uh, it's, It's a book that will change your life if you give it an opportunity. One last thing. Pastor Brett prayed for the offering. I was... I'm watching as they're going over here through their financial studies and the power of the word of God, and especially in Malachi where it says, test me in this, and God says in testing and giving. I don't ever preach on giving unless the text does. I don't ask you for your money. But I was moved by a man who for 41 years uh, was a financial planner. And he said to his customers for 41 years, he said, uh, let me have the opportunity to take 10% out of, out of your, your, your gross income and set it aside in an account. If you're... If, if your pay doesn't increase at the end of the year, I'll give you the money back. And for 41 years, you never had one client that ever asked for their money back because of the blessing God put on them. And, and giving is a test of our faith. So is prayer. Why would we give to a God we can't see, pray to a God we, we can't see, right? Why would we fast and give up food for a God we can't see? These are all areas where we grow in our faith. And so... Uh, when you come to a passage like this where you see genealogy, you say, ah, oh, boring... Don't be so quick to come to that conclusion. Today, you're going to be blown away, I pray, because I was. And if I'm the only one in the room, so be it. But I I don't think that's going to be the case. So let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We're going to pick up Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to read through the first 17 verses. You're going to hear a word repeated called begot. Um, That means they gave birth to. They got busy. All right, where were we? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Everyone say Tamar. Women weren't supposed to be included in Jewish genealogies, but yet we have a woman here. We're going to learn about Tamar in a moment. Perez begot Hezron and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Everyone say Rahab. Another woman there. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, say Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Everyone say Bathsheba. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah. Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram. Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz. Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, awful, awful king. Manasseh begot Ammon. Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. That's where we have the end of the official record in the temple, and yet Matthew still has the genealogy from Babylon up until Christ. And here's what happens. Verse 12, after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Sheltiel. Sheltiel begot Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel begot Ibu. That guy begot Eliakim, Eliakim begot Azor, Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, Achim begot 
Eliezer, Eliezer begot Mathan, Mathan begot Jacob, Jacob begot Joseph. Here we go. The begot's end. Now watch this. Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Jesus wasn't begotten. He was born of a virgin. Doesn't say that, right? See that? Now here we go. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. Everyone say 14. From David until the captivity to Babylon are 14 generations, say 14. And from the captivity in Babylon until the, until the Christ are 14 generations, say 14. Now, here we go. What's 14 times 3? 42. Boom, look at you. You were there doing that right there, weren't you? Weren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyone ever uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe? What is the number of life in everything? 42. Yeah, 42 is like the nerd's happiest number. And it is supposed to be an unbelievable number. And here you have 42 listed in the um, three times 14 in the three sets of 14 in the generation or genealogy of Jesus. You'll see more. That's just something trippy. I thought I'd throw it out. Lord, thank you for your word. Bless us now as we study it. I pray encouragement upon your people. And Lord, for those who are visiting that are wondering if Jesus is, is Lord, if they're, if they're questioning their life and what it all means, and they have come into contact with the God of the universe of intelligent design. And today, Lord, I pray by your word that you would just pour into their heart that they would realize today is the day I want to come into the genealogy of Jesus. So Lord, bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're beginning with Matthew. We're going to take a look at the entirety of the book of Matthew. Uh, Two of the accounts contain genealogy. In this account of genealogy, we see the genealogy uh, of Jesus through his father's lineage, Joseph, going all the way up through David, because for the Messiah, scripturally speaking in the Old Testament, to be fulfilled, uh, the Messiah had to come through the lineage of David. And here it is all clearly laid out through the the first two 14 generations laid out, it's all there. And we see that Jesus comes through the lineage of, of David. Not only that, connected to Abraham as well, and comes through that line. The other account is in Luke. And in Luke, uh, when you get to Solomon and Matthew, Solomon is the son of David from Bathsheba. Uh, not their first son, their first child died, as you recall, because it says who was the wife of Uriah that was the first child died because Bathsheba was still married to Uriah the Hittite. That child dies. So the next child, Solomon, is from David and also from Bathsheba, and they're married, and the lineage comes to Joseph through Solomon. In Luke, it goes through another son, Nathan. Nathan comes through where it comes through for Solomon. For Mary, it comes through the lineage of Nathan, but still connects to David and also to Bathsheba, and it comes all the way through there. So on both sides of Jesus's uh, both his maternal and, and paternal side, he is connected to David. And that's important because a Messiah, the Messiah had to be connected through the line of David. And we have both accounts listed, one in Matthew and the other in Luke. Uh, in, in this portion, we saw the, a list of four female names, which are seldom, if ever, included. They're not included in Jew, Jewish genealogy. And Matthew, being a Levitical priest or a renegade priest, as many scholars believe, uh, a man who understood because we see him quoting the Old Testament more than all the other gospel writers combined. And in addition, 38 times, he says, so that it would be fulfilled. And here you even see that it's listed um, in the genealogy 
um, that, that, that Matthew puts this in there. This is a messianic de- declaration by Matthew, and he does this 38 times in his gospel because he's a minister, and he understands the Old Testament, he understands messianic prophecy, and he's laying this out. And as he does this, he includes, which what most Jews don't, he includes women in the genealogy. And in it, he doesn't say be God, he says of. And the idea of of is, I, I want you to see who's included in this lineage. And it's fascinating because when you look at Tamar, she's a Canaanite. She is not a Jew, she's a Canaanite. Uh, when you look at um, uh, uh, Rahab, she's a, she's a Amorite. She's, she's, a, she's bad. She's, she's a prostitute. You're going to see this in that, in that re- recounting. And then when you get to Ruth, she's a Moabitess. A Moabitess came from Lot, who had incestual relations with his two daughters, Hull, right? And, and they got him drunk, and they slept with their own dad, and they got pregnant, and you had the Ammonites and the Moabites, and, and Ruth comes from, from the Moabite lineage. And it was said that you, you could not serve on the throne or be on the throne or be a priest until the 10th generation if you had Moabite blood. So David is three generations after Ruth, and so he's legitimate to stand on the throne, and he still is part Moabite. Fascinating. And you look at this, and this is a dysfunctional genealogy. This thing is screwed up. It is screwed up. And, and let's just add David to it. I mean, this is a man who's an adulterer and a murderer and a liar. Abraham, he didn't trust God. He... he he slept with uh, Hagar, the Egyptian handmaid. Uh, Ishmael came from that. There's a whole lineage that comes, and we're dealing with that today. You can go through, you have Manasseh in here, who was an awful king, but included in this, in the second 14 generations, or 14, the second grouping, three kings are missing because, according to Deuteronomy 29, if you practice idolatry, you're to be blotted out from the genealogy. So those three kings are removed, so it still holds to 14. And you see the pattern, 14, 14, 14. The pattern is what the Jews called gamatria, and the Jews used it for memorization. Because their alphabet was also their numeric system, they were able to easily memorize large portions of Scripture because they ascribed numeric value to it. For example, David's name, for us, David is D-A-V-I-D. In the, in the Hebrew, it's just three letters. And the three letters, the, the sum of them, if you give them their numeric value, equals 14, and so you go, oh, the generations of David, 14. And so to the Jew, it'd be memorization for 14, and then it'd come to 14. That's why every Jewish child by the age of 13 can memorize the entirety of Psalm 119 because every letter had a numeric value and they practiced gamatria where they started to do this. Now we have Kabbalah today where they ascribe kind of mystic ideas to each of the numbers and they go a little overboard. But in this case, it was for the purpose of memorization. And so they'd look at it and they would see this 14, 14, 14, and it would coincide with the numeric value of each of the letters of these Jewish names. And and going through this and looking at all of the different aspects of it, one of the things I did want to focus on is when you get to Tamar. Tamar is an interesting gal. Uh, Tamar was married to uh, one of Judah's sons, and Judah had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Quite a name for a man. Uh, just, I don't know, any man here named Sheila? Didn't think so. So, so he had Ur, Onan, and Sheila. Ur married Tamar, which uh, Ur was, was Judah's son. Ur married uh, Tamar and didn't have any children, and, and Ur was not a good dude, and God took him. He died. <laughs> Done. Well, the, 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 the Levitical uh, requirement was if your brother dies, you're to then marry his wife so that the lineage doesn't die and you can have children through her that would carry on your brother's lineage. 
And so it fell on Onan to marry Tamar and to have children by her. Well, Onan didn't really want anything to do with it. I'm not going to get into the details. It's kind of graphic. Uh, the, the Bible is even like pushing R. It's almost NC-17. And, and, it's, and it's, it's at that point where it, it describes why she didn't get pregnant. And God looked at that and said, that's just awful. And so Onan kicks the bucket. And Judah's looking like, I'm not giving you any more sons because everyone I give you, they end up dying. You're like a black widow woman or something, you know, and you, you eat your husbands. It's terrible. <clears throat> and he had one son left, and that was Sheila. And he said, Sheila's too young to really, you know, be a father right now. When he comes of age, I'll give him to you and, and follow Levitical law. Well, that time came and went, and Tamar realized Judah's not given another son. I'm going to be a widow. I'm going to be destitute. It's not going to happen. And she realizes that Judah lied through his teeth and he wasn't planning on ever caring for or ever fulfilling Levitical law. So she takes matters into her own hands and she dresses up like a prostitute. And she goes on an, uh, to a por- portion of town that is heavily traveled and she knows that Judah's passing that way. And she dresses up in a way to attract him and uh, he comes walking along and, and uh, there she is. And she's like, hey there, big boy. And he's, oh, hey, ha-ha. And... He's, you know, I don't have my visa card with me. He says, that's not a problem. I, you know, I'll, you put something as down payment. He says, how about the, my staff and my signet ring? And then I'll have my servant come and pay you for the services. And so he has sexual relations with her, leaves his staff and a signet ring. And um, when he comes back to make payment uh, for the sexual relations, she's nowhere to be found. And he thinks that's strange, but he moves on. Well, word gets back to him that his daughter-in-law is pregnant and he's livid. He says, it's time to burn her at the stake, kill her. And she says, fine, kill me. But I just want to let you know that I'm pregnant with the man who owns this staff and this signet ring. (laughs) And that's where Judah says, you're more uh, righteous than I am. And then thus we see through Tamar, Perez, there were actually two children born, but Perez is the one that the lineage travels through. God adds that. I like that. I like that he adds that. I mean, I'm celebrating my, my father-in-law's 80th birthday. I found out that his mother was uh, Irish. His father was Italian. He grew up in Long Island. I heard some stories. It's crazy. And uh, he, he, my father-in-law is not my wife's biological dad, uh, but, but my wife has never wanted to know who her biological father is because she's always considered Tom to be that man. He adopted her when she was very young. He was like a knight in shining armor, came to a woman that had three kids in the early 70s, right? when divorce was the exception, not the rule. And here's this woman struggling, and this man comes in with a steady job at Lockheed and has two children of his own and takes the whole family under his wings, goes to work at Lockheed at night, repairs engines to provide for these beasts that are just consuming, and three boys that ate everything in the house. It's a wonder Michelle even got any sustenance. She was the youngest of the five. They ate everything. And to this day, she still has a nice figure because she's learned how to eat on very little. But as I, heard, as I heard the lineage and the genealogy briefly in the 26 years I've been married to Michelle, her biological lineage, uh, when I heard of her biological father, it was awful. Michelle would be hiding in a closet as he would be coming home to beat the, um, my, my mother-in-law. Her and Tracy would be hiding in the closet, scared to death. She doesn't want anything to do with him, don't even, doesn't even know if he's still alive. That's the lineage. But she was adopted into Tom's family and has a whole new line. When I think of my daughter, Natasha, who was adopted into our family, we have four biological children, one grafted, Natasha. She's in Cambodia now working at an orphanage. And the fascinating thing about Natasha is her biological lineage 
Her parents left her when she was young. She felt abandoned. Her grandmother burned the house down. Her grandfather died of some disease. Her aunt was a prostitute. Awful things happened to her in the orphanage. I I can go on and on about the biological side that makes Tamar look tame. And it's awful. But she's been adopted into my family. And and I remember when she was 12 years old and she was sitting with with all the authorities in in Vladimir, Russia, and, and, and there she said, they, the, the judge asked her, do you want this couple to adopt you? And this, this was a turning point in her life. At 12 years of age, she was going to make a decision that was going to change her whole life. We knew what we were getting into. She had no clue at 12. I had, I, I had some experience. And 12 years of age, she says, yes. And then shaking, she said to Michelle and I through an interpreter, what do you want my new name to be? We said, you have a name, Natasha. And she started to cry that she got to keep her own name. I said, would you like to add a name? She says, yes. Well, how about if we add Grace? It was Michelle's grandmother's name. It could be your name. Grace means God's riches at Christ's expense. It's a, it's a biblical term. She didn't have a comprehension of it. Her gr- grandfather kind of knew the Lord, but no one else in the family. And she said, I like that. And boy, would it mark her life. And she had rough go. And I, would, I, I, and I say to her often, I say, Natasha, the four kids that we gave birth to, I, they're like aliens in my home. I don't get them. Their childhoods are different than my own. They all have known the Lord since birth, and that wasn't my life. You, I get you. If there's anyone who understands you, I understand you. You're like one child I can relate to. I mean, I, my family, my, my grandfather uh, on my father's side, um, my aunt told me that they'd be going to, to church camp, and they'd be in the bus, and all the kids would be laughing at the drunk man on the bridge, and it was my grandfather. My, my grandmother on my father's side was, was the tarot card reader. She was, she was the spiritist. She was the one you went to go have your, your palm read. That was my grandmother and my grandfather. My, my grandmother died on my mother's side when she was 17. I don't know much about her. My grandfather, I do know simply this, and not much has been spoken, that when I told my mother I wanted to name my first son Daniel, she said, no. She said, no grandchild of mine will be named Daniel. I said, why? And she said, do you know what your grandfather's name was? I said, no, you never talk of him. His name was Daniel Frank McKee, and he was the most awful man who ever lived. And I don't want any grandchild of mine named Daniel. I said, well, mom, I can't help that. God told me his name would be Daniel. And she struggled with it, but she connected with Daniel. And it was cathartic for her to say that name and find healing. And he left when she was four. One man said that we met years later, said the world wasn't big enough for Frank McKee. Daniel Frank McKee was an awful man. And what's fascinating about him is I don't know what he did to my mother up until the age of four, but she never wanted to speak of him. That's a lineage. That's a genealogy. And my dad was the first in his family and the only to ever get a college degree. He made sure all four of his kids got a college degree. Things changed with my dad. My mother never let anything ever happen to us. She protected us. She watched out for us. She struggled. They didn't, neither of them knew the Lord. They, They drank a lot but they stayed together through the tough times. That's a genealogy. And when Natasha came into the family, my mom was touched by it because my mom knew what it was like to be adopted because at 17, she'd lost her mother. She had to go live with her aunt. She knew what it was like to be outside. She connected with Natasha and Natasha loved her and loved my dad. And I think about Natasha's life. I think about my life. I think about the lives of my kids. Totally different than what previous generations had. 
Natasha's whole life has been changed as she's been grafted in. And you know what? When we become Christians, we're grafted into the genealogy of Jesus. And there's room for all of us no matter what you've done. I mean, really, this, this is like the island of lost toys. Look around. <laughs> and there's room in the genealogy of Christ for each and every one of us. And you say, oh, no, God couldn't forgive me. Well, let's think about Tamar there for a minute. We can go through Abraham. We can take a look at some of these. Manasseh was an awful king. His life was so pathetic that at the end, he turned to his grandson, Josiah. He said, don't live the way I did. And it was Josiah, after exile, that turned the entire nation around. We're going into a, a, a very precarious time. We're going to be in exile in our own country, and we can see the genealogy, 14, 14, 14. For, for a number of those folks, it was all in exile. They'd lost their nation, but they didn't lose their God. They didn't lose their birthright. They didn't lose their genealogy. They knew who they were. And, and you can see that with, with Tamar. Here she is as a Canaanite. Here she is as a woman who played the prostitute and deceived her father-in-law. And from that comes the genealogy of Jesus. And God doesn't leave it out. He puts it in there. It gets worse because from there it says that Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, Nashon begot Solomon, Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab. Rahab. She was an Amorite. She didn't play the prostitute. She was a prostitute. Every man that worked the the trade route ended up in her bed. I'm not kidding. This woman was renowned, awful, miserable, broken, scarred life. Images that would flash, things that had occurred in her life and the abuse that she endured. And how does, it, how does a woman get to that place? What happened in her childhood? What is she seeking in the bed of all these different men? What's flooding in her mind that she would stand and say to the spies of Israel, we know that God is for you and we're, we're doomed. And she hides them and protects them. And God puts her in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. And for those of you who think that you're so righteous that you don't hang around with a Rahab, take her out of the hall of faith. Take Samson out of the hall of faith. I, I, I marvel at the body of Christ that says, I'm tired of voting for the lesser of two evils. Unless Jesus Christ is running for office, you will always be voting for the lesser of two evils. <laughs> and he said, I can't vote for one of these candidates. They're awful. Well, tell me one moral thing about Samson. Just one. Good luck with that. Yet God used him. Why? To confront the Philistine. Rahab to protect the nation. Tell me one moral thing about her. She even lied to get in. And her whole life is marked as a prostitute. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Ruth, a Moabitess. She's from the lineage of Lot having ancestral relations with his two daughters. Can it get any more dysfunctional? They put the fun in dysfunction. This is a screwed up genealogy. And some of you are going, well, I'm better than Christ. I, my, my genealogy is pure bread, and I, I, I eat from a silver spoon, and I come from blue blood all the way through. And you, could you put your nose down because you're blocking the light? <laughs> We're tired of looking into your nostrils. I got news for you. I don't care how you've dressed up your genealogy and whatever pedigree you've put together. You give me a little bit of time, I'm going to find some dirt. <laughs> Somewhere in there, you got an uncle daddy. <laughs> hey, we live in a fallen world. 
You just go back far enough and uh, guess what? Guess what? We're all messed up. And the only thing that keeps you out of the genealogy of Christ is your pride. You think that your genealogy is better than the genealogy of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who wants you in and wants to graft you and adopt you. And you'd rather stay in the pittance and the misery of your world that's ending. We're on a train bound for forever. And we're going to stand before God and give an accounting of our life. And you're not going to get to blame your parents or your grandparents. Because God will say, I wanted to adopt you and you didn't want it. You're like Natasha. You have the chance to say, yes, I want to be a part of that family. Could you imagine where she would be? Did you, do you realize that if she had said no, waiting for someone else, they closed adoptions 11 days after we finalized it, she would have never been adopted. She'd probably be a prostitute on the streets of Russia right now. But she said yes. She had a rough time here, no doubt. But she came to a saving knowledge of Christ to the point where she's in Cambodia now telling orphans that they too can have a family. That's the power of God. And that's his economy. And so you see here, God uses Ruth, a Moabitess. It goes three generations to David so that it fit, fulfills Levitical law. And if that's not enough to put into the funkiness of this genealogy, you get all the way down. And as you come through it, you see here um, that David begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. The reason why the first child wasn't accepted in, in the, in the um, adulterous relationship that David had with Bathsheba while Uriah was still alive that first child died, and that, that child wouldn't go through lineage because David was still, or Bathsheba was still married to Uriah. And after Uriah is murdered by David, the baby dies. Then David, legally in front of all the people, confesses of his sin, marries Bathsheba. Solomon is born, and God says, let's continue. And so the lineage travels through this. A murderous, adulterous man and an adulterous woman complicit in the death of her own husband, in a sense. And God uses this. And then it comes all the way down, and when it gets to the final portion of the genealogy, it says, Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Christ is not his last name. It's his title, Messiah, the Savior of the world. And he wasn't begotten. He was born of a virgin. Luke points that out as well. So all the generations of Abraham to David are 14 generations from David until captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. There you have the gametria. Any Jew could memorize this. They could see the legitimacy of his claim to be in the messianic lineage of the house of David. All the way back to Abraham. Any Jew could read that. Any Jew could look at that and say, this man knows how to write a genealogy in its accordance with the Levitical prescriptions. And you had the gametria where it was easily memorized and anyone could grasp it. But that's not all. Matthew didn't know he was doing this. Mark didn't know he was doing it. Luke certainly didn't know he was doing it. John had no clue he was doing it. Matthew was the only genuine Jew. And, and with Mark, he's writing for Peter, who's half Jewish and half Gentile. Luke is, is writing the, the words of Paul, but he himself is a Gentile. He's a physician. John, I mean, you see the bridge in each of these that they have Gentile backgrounds. Only Matthew. And even here, he couldn't, he couldn't write for the other three gospel accounts. And each different gospel account uses different words. Luke was a physician. He uses medical terms that no one else uses. 
John uses terms no other author uses. Mark uses terms no author uses. And as they come together, of the four gospel accounts, there's something that's fascinating that is called the heptatic structure. You see, seven is the number of completion. It is a biblical number speaking of the completion of God. It is a perfect number. One of the reasons why they love 42 is it's divisible by seven, and seven is the perfect number. Seven is the picture of God himself. And the heptatic structure, what you see is the first seven words of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Seven words. In the Hebrew, seven words. In English, seven words. You look at the heptatic structure and you look for the sevens in this, which is so fascinating that it'll blow you away. They, uh, their, their numeric value of each of these words, there's 28 letters in all seven words in the opening verse of the Old Testament. There's 28 word, or excuse me, 28 letters. Four times eight, or excuse me, four times seven is 28. 28 is divisible by seven. Three nouns, God, heavens, earth. The numeric value of all three is 777, which is divisible by seven because 111 times seven is 777. <gasps> There's one verb, created. The numeric value of that is 203, which is divisible by seven. It's 29 times seven. The first three words contain the subject with exactly 14 uh, letters. That's two times seven. There's 11 features that a man... Well, there's actually 30 features in the first verse of the Bible that are all dealt with the heptatic structure. You see the divisibility by seven. It's fascinating. It is an, a, 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 um, a mathematical phenomenon. You, you can't make this up. If you just took 11 of the 30 features, the odds of it falling being divisible, each case by seven, is one in 33 trillion. All it, all it screams of is intelligent design. Nobody could write that and make it mathematically correct with a writing structure that gives numeric value to each of the letters and make it each divisible by seven in every way, shape, and form. You just, you dissect it any, it always comes up seven. 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 So what you're saying, yeah, seven. 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 But the problem is, well, it's not even a problem. The exciting thing is, that's Hebrew. New Testament's Greek. We're going to have a problem there. No, we won't. You see, the Greeks ascribed a numeric value to their letter system, to their alphabet system. And so in the first 11 verses of Matthew, which, which we've read, you see the heptatic structure everywhere. It doesn't break in the Greek. It doesn't break. 49 words. 7 times 7. 28 words begin with a vowel, four times seven. 21 begin with a consonant, three times seven. Seven words end with a consonant. 42 end with a consonant, six times seven. 42 are nouns, six times seven. Three women, and you take the numeric value of the letters of their name, it equals 14 divisible by seven is two times seven. 14 features in just the first seven verses of Matthew 1, 14 features. What are the odds? One in 678 billion. We can go through the rest and do an exhaustive search. And some of you go, I don't really buy. First of all, it screams of intelligent design. The heptatic structure is so clear. So you go, I don't buy it. Ivan Panin. Ivan Panin. Interesting man. I'm limited in time, but let me share this with you. He was born in in Russia, December 12th, 1855. 
He was a nihilist. He didn't believe in God. He plotted against the czar government. He was a mathematical genius. He actually entered into Harvard, got a PhD in mathematics from Harvard. And from 1892 until 1942, he began to write voluminous works, over 43,000 pages. He wrote, declaring the heptatic structure of the scriptures. When he came to Christ, newspapers in America declared this agnostic from Russia has, has embraced Christ. It was, it was unbelievable what had occurred. This man was so well-known, you know, Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland, mathematician, all these great mathematicians. They looked at him, they said, how is this possible? And he started to lay this out and he took the 43,000 pages of his notes, voluminous in its work, and he gave them to the Nobel Research Association, Nobel Research Foundation. And he said this, he said, this is proof that the Bible is indeed the word of God. The response from the Nobel Research Foundation, their reply was, as far as our uh, investigation has proceeded, and this is at the end of the last century, it's changed now, they would never do this. As far as our investigation has proceeded, we find the evidence overwhelming in favor of such a statement. They were staggered by what they found. They couldn't believe the heptatic structure of scripture. There was no way any man could have put this together. And here's the other fascinating part. Of the four gospel accounts, all four gospel counts, the entire word count based on the numeric value is divisible by seven. It goes on and on and on and on. Two things that we glean today. One is you're holding in your hand the living, breathing word of God without excuse. You can make an excuse, but it has no substance. The next one is, God is declaring to you and me through the power of this living, breathing, authoritative word of an intelligent designer, God himself, he's saying to you, I want to adopt you. I want you to come on into the family. You know, I don't know. I don't want to be associated with the Tamars of the world. Rahab, who wants to be a part of that? I look around this room. Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. There's room for another one. Christianity's a crutch. No, it isn't. It's a lung machine and a heart machine and a blood machine and a kidney machine, dialysis. It's, it's crutches. It's a gurney. It's everything. It's not just a crutch. It's my life. What God has done by adopting me, what God did by adopting my dad and adopting my mom, the reason why I so love to speak of Natasha is because in her life I see my own. Even when she spent a year down in Oxnard trying to live life apart from God. I'll never forget the words I said to her when she left. She's got her car packed. It began to rain. First time it began to rain a long time. It's like God was crying because we were. And I said, Natasha, you only owe me one thing. If you find anything better than Jesus out there, you got to come tell me. She says, Dad, I know. I know. It's, I just have to do this. If anyone ever tried to figure it out, she gave it the best shot ever. She came back and said, Dad, I need Jesus. I want to be a part of his family. She could never deny how much we loved her. She just didn't understand the source. And one day it all made sense. And I can lay out sevens for you till you're blue in the face. I can, I can debate with you. I can argue with you. But let me ask you this. How's it going for you and that family of yours? not like the world's getting rosier. 
You know what? Come November 8th, nothing in my family changes. My God is still on the throne. My family still loves the Lord. We still love each other. And I have been young and I've been old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor their children begging bread. Everything's going to be fine. It doesn't matter what comes down the pike. God is in control and he's got me covered. And I rest in that. I'm gonna, my pillow, I'm going to be sound asleep no matter what the election results are on November 8th. Even if I win or lose. Actually, that's what I was talking about. It wasn't any, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'll be sound asleep. I have no problem with that. I'll work as though it depends on me and pray as though it depends on him and I'll do everything in my power to honor him because I want to glorify him on earth as it is in heaven. But we conclude with this thought. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been. It doesn't matter how screwed up your family is or how perfect you think you are. There's room in God's family for you. It was Matthew who said, come to me, all you were burdened and heavy laden. Matthew tried to live his life by legalism and he realized, I can't do this. And he had given up on the church and came back. God said, come on in. I want to adopt you. He adopted me. He adopted my daughter, Natasha, after we had adopted her. But he told us to adopt her, then he adopted her. What's keeping you? Do you need another person to relate to? How about Rahab? Ruth? You want Manasseh? You want Judah? David? Everybody's got issues. Doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, God's ready to adopt you. He has declared it mathematically. He's declared it by intelligent design. And he's declared it by his immense love for you. He says, come on. I want you in. I want you in the genealogy of Jesus. And it's okay to be adopted. You know, you may look at my daughter differently because she's adopted. I have to tell you a secret. My other kids won't be upset with me. I probably love her more than my other kids. She's special to me. Every time I see her, I see my life in Christ. What a gift. Don't neglect so great a gift. It's yours today. Let's pray.